This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. From Washington, I'm Sandia Rahman, healthcare reporter for CQ Roll Call, filling in for Jason Dick. This week, we're going to look at health disparities. Many of these inequities were there before COVID-19, but it took the pandemic for many to notice. For example, hospitalizations for COVID-19 for Native American and Alaskan populations are 3.4 times higher than for white individuals, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And Black or Hispanic pregnant women are disproportionately affected by infection with the COVID-19 virus, per data from the Mayo Clinic. But no data suggests that any racial group has a higher likelihood of biologically being affected by COVID-19. But socioeconomic factors do affect health. Income and education levels, access to health and transportation, all impact people's health. Minorities also have higher rates of some underlying conditions, like diabetes, that can put people at higher risk for severe illness. Achieving health equity between different racial and ethnic groups is a complicated process. We're joined here today by Dr. Lena Wen, an emergency physician and former health commissioner of Baltimore. She is a leading expert on public health and the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you for joining us. Happy to join you. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start with a, a big question on my mind, which is the variant Delta. We're all seeing how this strain is spreading across the country and affecting a wider variety of individuals. Are we seeing evidence that this is having a greater impact on different racial and ethnic groups? Well, here's what we know about the Delta variant. We know that this is the most contagious strain yet that we have seen of COVID-19. It is far more contagious than the Alpha variant that was that's even more contagious than the original variant. And that original variant, just to remind everyone, caused a global pandemic. And so we are dealing with something that is a major problem when it comes to its likelihood of infecting people. In addition, there is some evidence that it causes more severe illness in people that it strikes as well. And um, there was another, there was a study published that found that an individual who is, who gets the Delta variant has about a thousand times the virus than somebody who got the initial strain of COVID-19. And so all this is to say, this might explain why we're seeing so many younger people who are unvaccinated in particular. Um, we are seeing them get sicker faster and infect more people because of this Delta variant. Now, of course, it's people who are unvaccinated who constitute the the highest proportion of individuals who are getting infected and are getting ill. And because the, um, there is there are remaining disparities when it comes to disparities by income, disparities by race, disparities by zip code and geography, we are seeing that those populations that are unvaccinated are hit the hardest by the Delta variant. Have we made any inroads in addressing some of these disparities that have been pointed out over the past year? I mean, I think we have done some work and some important work in this. And here I would credit the Biden administration a lot for what they have done, because we know that disparities don't go away on their own. And in fact, 
unless we are intentional about reducing disparities, they just get worse. And so I think it's really wonderful that the Biden administration really committed to addressing disparities as a key outcome measure in and of itself to make the point that when you assist with the most vulnerable, you're not taking something away from others, as in we're actually able to improve care for everyone overall by focusing on those who are disproportionately affected. So I do think that without that kind of intentional focus, we would be in a much worse place than we are now. And we have to continue these efforts. I mean, that includes, for example, targeted outreach, looking at which areas have low rates of vaccination, specifically targeting those areas, enlisting trusted messengers, because we know that the messenger is at, uh, often even more important than the message. And then also meeting people where they are, going to churches, going to workplaces, and so forth. Ultimately, though, I think that the single most important thing that will increase vaccine uptake is mandates. That's what we have seen um, for other immunizations as well. I mean, you mentioned that I was formerly the health commissioner for Baltimore. Every year at the beginning of the school year, there would be thousands of families who have not met the requirements for childhood vaccinations. By and large, these are not families that are anti-vaccine or have some reason as to why their kids are why they don't want their kids to be vaccinated. Rather, it's that they are access issues. There are other more pressing concerns than getting their kids vaccinated. Um, parents or caregivers may be working; they might not have had the time or the ability to do this. And so, I think that that's actually also what we're seeing in communities of color that there are remaining access issues that can help to be resolved with a combination of vaccine mandates and then bring vaccines to workplaces, to schools, to places where people are. So you brought up the administration, and I know the administration has given the go-ahead for a booster third dose of the Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines starting next month for individuals who were vaccinated at least eight months ago. At the same time, uh, Black and Hispanic individuals remain less likely than their white counterparts to have received a vaccine yet at all. So I guess what are the challenges here in moving forward with the third dose while still pursuing the vac vaccine equity that you mentioned? Well, I'm, first, I want to clarify that the plan by the Biden administration is contingent on the vaccines, the booster dose receiving the authorization by the FDA and CDC. Um, and so that has not happened yet. But I think that in general, the Biden plan is the right one. I mean, I think it's the right thing to do to anticipate what's ahead. Now that there is some evidence suggesting that the effectiveness of the vaccines may be waning over time, especially in light of the Delta variant, let's not wait until we know for sure that the effectiveness against hospitalization is waning. Right now, that appears to be holding strong, but effectiveness against infection is waning. Let's not wait. Let's let's do the right thing and, and get ready. So I think that the, the the general concept of getting the boosters ready is the right thing to do. I also think this is not a zero-sum case. I think we can and should do both. There is the imperative overall from a public health standpoint to reduce the level of transmission in the community through increasing vaccination rates for the unvaccinated. That's what's going to have the biggest impact on reducing COVID-19 surge is getting the unvaccinated their first dose of the vaccine. What will help individuals, 
There are going to be some individuals, especially those who are elderly, who have chronic medical illnesses, who are nursing home residents, and are already seven, eight months out from getting their initial doses. Those are individuals who really should be getting a booster dose to protect them, to assist with their own medical condition, to prevent them from getting hospitalized. We can treat both the individual and help the individual, as well as address the public health impact. Like it or not, we in the U.S. are extremely privileged. We are very lucky to have access to um, enough boosters and enough vaccines for our entire population that's eligible. I mean, I, I think we can talk about the ethics of, of the global vaccine effort as well. But when it comes to the U.S., we have enough vaccine. We have doses, in fact, that are set to expire, millions of doses that are going to expire unless we use them. And so I certainly do not see this as an either or. I think we should focus on populations that have not yet been vaccinated. Um, and again, recognize that access for, for them remains an, an issue. And at the same time, work on getting boosters out to, uh, to individuals who need them and want them to. So I know that there there have been different polls and things about um, how different groups may be more hesitant to get the vaccine for different reasons. And has that been something that you've seen change over time or has been kind of stable? Or can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, in the beginning, when the vaccines were first given emergency use authorization, in a way, it was understandable that while there were some people who said, I want to get the vaccine immediately, there were some others in the wait and see category. They wanted to see what would happen when their neighbors, their friends, people that they knew, their co-workers got the vaccine. And then, of course, when nothing happened, there were very few side effects. And in fact, those people were protected from COVID. We saw a large uptake um, among individuals who were in that wait and see category. Now, the primary reason why people are still holdouts, yes, there are some people who are actually anti-vaccine or who have some political reason for not getting it. But by and large, the main reason why people are still holding off on getting, vac on getting vaccinated is they are more concerned about the vaccine than they are about COVID. As in, it's both and. It's people who may have heard disinformation or misinformation about the vaccine, who and, and also who think that the fear of COVID may be overblown, or who may have had COVID before and aren't sure that they want to get vaccinated, or who just somehow think that they are invincible and are unlikely to get very ill from COVID, and that's why they're not getting the vaccine. This is another reason why vaccine mandates will help to push many of these people who are on the fence over to the side of getting the vaccine. Many of the people who remain unvaccinated are not somehow principally against the vaccine. They're not anti-vaxxers who don't vaccinate their children or who may hold other anti-science beliefs. They just need an additional nudge and push. And that's what vaccine mandates can and should do. There have been, we now know, a lot of companies that have said that they're not going to give um, a vaccine mandate until there is full FDA approval. Well, now that has happened with the Pfizer vaccine. And so I certainly hope um, that many of these companies will stop waiting because at this point, what are they waiting for? We have more than enough evidence. We also have full approval now given for the Pfizer vaccine. And it's way past time for us to be using vaccine requirements and critically proof of vaccination as a way for us to increase vaccine uptake. So schools are also starting to reopen in the next couple of weeks. And I'm, I'm kind of curious how health disparities among children have been documented during the pandemic so far and what kind of needs to be addressed here as kids are starting to go back to school in person. 
It's a really good question. And I think that question with the answer to the question needs to begin with addressing the vast educational disparities that were already there pre-pandemic that have only gotten worse because of the pandemic. We know that children need in-person schooling and that by not having in-person school, that the educational deficits have widened, the disparities have, have gotten worse, and also our children have really suffered from isolation, from um, because of their emotional well-being, because of, um, of, of, uh, of other issues related to their development um, and social um, and social growth and other things because of not having in-person school. Um, I actually don't even think we need studies to tell us that, although there are definitely some studies that have documented this as well. And of course, we know that our most vulnerable children depend on school for other things too, including, for example, I oversaw school health in Baltimore. In, uh, in, in our city, for many of our children, this was the place where children went to get their medical care. Um, the, um, they also depended on school for, uh, for other things like food and nutrition, to as a place to get vision screening and hearing screening to see if they need additional help. And so many of these other services, including social services, have been lost during this time period. So I absolutely think it's essential for our children to be back in person for school. The good news is that by this point, a year and a half into the pandemic, we know exactly what it takes to keep our schools open safely. Schools can be some of the safest places from a COVID-19 transmission standpoint if we implement the layers of protection that we know to work. And I think the tragedy is when there are politicians who are not even allowing local control, who aren't allowing local school districts to decide what's best for their students to essentially, in this case, follow the CDC guidelines on how to keep schools open safely. That's the tragedy because our kids need to be back in school and they can be. So let's allow the science in this case to, to, to lead and to um, make sure that our kids are getting the benefit of in-person school and to be able to do that in a safe environment. So you brought up some of the, the secondary effects of the pandemic where it's not just the virus, but it's other things caused by staying at home. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that. The you know a lot of people have reported um, you know ill effects related to the recession and rising drug overdose deaths and reported higher levels of anxiety and depression. And I guess how does some of these factor into the quest for health equity? Some of the secondary effects. That's again a really good question, and I think we have to go back to the fact that there were so many public health crises prior to the pandemic. And these issues have not gotten better. If anything, they've all been worsened because our attention has been has been elsewhere. We had prior to the pandemic an epidemic of opioid overdoses. That's gotten worse. Um, we now have ninety three thousand overdose deaths in a year, and in some ways, it's not surprising because addiction is a disease of isolation, and recovery depends on relationships. We have not been able to have many of these relationships during, during the time of coronavirus and also the same state and local health departments that were focused on the opioid epidemic have now, their resources have now been diverted to COVID. And so we have many such issues, lack of attention to mental health, lack of attention to STIs, HIV, um, the issues and the problems around the obesity epidemic. Uh, all these are things that we have not um, been focused on enough even prior to COVID now that's only gotten worse. And I really worry about this. I mean, I think if COVID were time limited, like a hurricane, 
then you could focus on COVID for several weeks or several months and then turn our attention to all these other neglected health issues. That's not what's happened. In fact, we've seen that we really don't know at this point how long COVID is going to last and how long our acute focus on the pandemic is going to last. And that is certainly very concerning when it comes to all these other issues that are getting worse by the day. So switching gears, uh, one thing that I've heard from experts is that there are a lot of gaps in data related to race and ethnicity. And I guess, how would gathering more demographic data about the pandemic, um, how could it help address broader inequities if we know more about that? Well, first, if we don't know that the problem exists, it's not possible to put our focus on it and to target interventions accordingly. That's one reason why data are so important. Even think back to the beginning of the pandemic when we first had data about test positivity rates. You could have test positivity in a, in a community that looks okay. But then if the test positivity in a particular demographic are extremely high, it means that there is there, there are undiagnosed infections in that group and that many more outreach efforts need to be targeted to this group for some particular reason. So we need to understand why is there an outbreak in this group and why is there not the level of testing? Maybe it's because of lack of access to testing sites, and that means that we have to do more targeted testing. Maybe it's because certain individuals are immigrants and they're fearing immigration um, officials, and that's what the reason why they're not seeking healthcare services. I mean, under having the data is key to understanding the underlying causes and then to be being able to target the reasons too. But I think that your question brings about a deeper question, which is that COVID-19 did not create health disparities, but it certainly has unmasked them. We have seen how much uh, we have a system of unequal healthcare access in this country and also of unequal health outcomes that are deeply embedded. This was not created overnight, but there are deep systemic inequities deep structural racism that we have to acknowledge. We need to address the short-term problems, but we also need to acknowledge and then start addressing these deeper issues as well. And that's also only possible if we have the data. So is there a goal that we could set that either a government agency or it could be done on a state level that could gather some of this data that, that would be essential? Well, I think having real-time collection of data would be important. And those data should include testing. They should include vaccinations. They should include the level of COVID-19 infections. Um, I think once we have that, we, once we have those data, I would encourage local and state health authorities to also set targets accordingly. So, um, for example, you could set targets not only for um, what you want to do overall for COVID infection, but also specifically how you will plan on reducing disparities. Are there disparities and equities metrics that you could be that you could be using as well? Understanding that those things come together, that it, you can both reduce COVID nineteen infections overall and also reduce the disparities between certain groups. And I think both of those taken together are essential in how we approach not only coronavirus but also other health issues as well. So, Dr. Wen, you've also taught health policy at George Washington University's Milken School of Public Health. Are there things that could feasibly be done by Congress to kind of level out any of these inequities that come to mind? That's a great question, and I will go back to the issue of vaccine mandates. Um, I, I think that having 
proof of vaccination, having vaccine requirements will do a lot when it comes to increasing vaccination rates and um, and and and, uh, and especially re reducing disparities in this case as well. Um, and beyond that, I do think that collecting demographic information, as we talked about, and then empowering local jurisdictions to set their own goals based on um, based on the salient conditions in the local environments will be important too. Um, Longer term, one of the issues that um, I'm very concerned about isn't so much by Congress, but is what's happening by with state legislatures. There are state legislatures that have already sought to limit the powers of public health when it comes to quarantine, when it comes to issuing mask mandates. What I really worry about is what happens with the next pandemic or what happens even with outbreaks. And local health authorities now cannot be requiring individuals to quarantine who have multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. Or if we have another um, airborne illness, let's say that we have a, an outbreak of measles and masking and contact tracing is now not able not able to be done. I mean, I really worry about how much public health has become politicized mm -hmm. and now in the crosshairs of, of the culture wars that has profound impacts on the pandemic and of course on worsening disparities too. Because whenever it is that, that populations suffer, it's always those who are the most vulnerable who are going to bear the brunt of inequities and, and disparities. So are there suggestions that you have for the state level? I know that is a little trickier because it is state by state, but is there something that could be done um, there or would it have to come kind of top above from the administration? No, I actually think that most of, of what I am urging is is on the state level. Mm -hmm. um, I do think also that the federal government has a role to play here too. I mean, when it comes to vaccine mandates, for example, the Biden administration can be requiring vaccines on planes, on trains, in federal buildings. That's in their jurisdiction under their authority. And I think they should take those steps. But I think when it comes to, um, and, and also the Biden administration should really get behind vaccine verification because that will also help to provide a level of security um, and and empower local businesses and others to implement vaccine requirements. But when it comes to states, I mean, the least they could do is get out of the way, as in do not impede the public health authority even more. Um, do not um, prevent local school boards from implementing mask mandates. I mean, that's the really the least that they could do is at least not get in the way of public health powers that are trying to do the right thing. I want to thank Dr. Wen for joining us today. Thank you so much. For all of us at CQ Roll Call, thanks for listening. <laughs>